Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're studying through the Gospel of Mark. We find ourselves in the last week of Jesus before his crucifixion, and we're in chapter 12, verse 35. The topic, as part of his criticism of certain scribes, Jesus accuses them of devouring widows' houses, and so the title of our message is The Real House Widows of Jerusalem. (laughs) What's the matter? Anybody that wants to send me a title, you're welcome to do it. My email is out there. My, My door is always open. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we appreciate the worship. A time for us to set our hearts towards you, to ascribe to you the worth that you deserve, to join with brothers and sisters, to example for any that are not saved here this morning, Lord, the joy that we have that we'd be willing to sing to you in a group of strangers, as it were, because of your glory and what you've done. That's the kind of joy that you give us. Now your word is open before us. And your spirit is here, as he promised to be, to teach us. And I pray that every hurt and every need and uh, every question, Lord, would be answered today by this text, by your spirit. It would be a tall order for any text if this were not what it is, and that is the word of God, the living, powerful word of God. And so we trust that you're going to do all those things and more. And we trust it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I almost met Tim Burton. He's the renowned director of such films as The Nightmare Before Christmas and Edward Scissorhands. He directed Alice Through the Looking Glass, which is in theaters now. Gino and I were in Tarzana at a Pete's coffee shop waiting for a vintage guitar uh, guitar store to open. I don't remember the exact sequence of events, but at some point we were talking about a Tim Burton movie that was about to be released. I'm pretty sure it was The Corpse Bride. Another customer overheard us and interjected something pretty technical about the film. We responded, but I didn't think much of it. I think Gino knew that it was Tim Burton, but he was deferring to me as a good son. My second clue came when the barista called him Tim. In my defense, I'd never seen a picture of Tim Burton, so I did not recognize him. How many of you know what Tim Burton looks like? Raise your hand. Uh, Five more people than first service, so I don't feel that bad. (laughs) Nevertheless, it was an epic celebrity fail. You know, we always want to see celebrities, and then you see one, and it was a fail. A much bigger fail can be found in our passage. The first century Jewish religious authorities failed to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. True, they had never seen a photo of their Messiah, but their scriptures presented a pretty good word picture of him. You and I have never seen a photo of Jesus, but we have a complete picture of him now that we have both the Old and the New Testaments. It's important we see Jesus as he is truly revealed in every facet if we are to see, uh, succeed rather in revealing him to a world that is perishing and in need of the salvation that only he can offer. I'll organize my thoughts around two questions of my own. Number one, are you revealing Jesus as he is presented in the word? And number two, are you revealing Jesus as you are present out in the world. Let's take a look first of all as at Jesus uh, and, and him being presented in the word of God. This is verses 35 through 37. 
Now, speaking of movies, a common plot point is for the king or prince or the queen or the princess to throw on a disguise and go out among the common people. Think Aladdin in the Disney animated feature that's named after him. Jasmine is in the marketplace. She's in disguise. And she sees a little boy reaching up to try and get an apple off of a cart. And he can't reach it. And so she grabs the apple and gives it to him. And the merchant thinks that she is stealing the apple. Of course, she doesn't have any money because she's the princess and doesn't need to carry money. And he's going to cut off her hand for being a thief. And then Aladdin has to swoop in and save her. Now, Jesus wasn't in disguise like that. It's just that the Jews weren't thinking that their Messiah would be more than a mere man. They could have known, but they were only seeing part of what their scripture said about him. In our verses, Jesus is going to give them the whole picture. And so verse 35, then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Uh, The word answer doesn't mean that Jesus was asked a question. He was responding to being peppered with questions. Having answered everything thrown at him, he now had a question of his own. This is how he answered their criticism. He was addressing his own disciples, but there were plenty of scribes within earshot. We need a name for this kind of evangelism. When you're out in public and you raise your voice on purpose to talk about Jesus so that people around you can hear. Do you ever do that? I recommend you do it. Of course, I don't have to raise my voice. I have to lower my voice. But anyway, uh, but we need to name this. Maybe we could call it loud missions or maybe amplified Bible. How's that? I know that's been taken, but we could, if you come up with a better name, let me know. We could have a whole, we could write a book and make millions. Anyway. How about we look at the scribes? Now, the scribes, they were revered teachers of the scriptures. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these two different, very different groups, they each had their scribes, they each had their teachers. The common people depended upon the scribes to interpret God's word for them. They taught, accurately I might add, that the Christ is the son of David. Christ means their Messiah. It's a letter-for-letter translation of the Greek word Christos, meaning the anointed one, which is a translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. The title, the anointed one, recalls the fact that in ancient times a man was made king by being anointed with oil, representing the Holy Spirit coming upon him. So they would just literally pour oil from a horn over your head and it would run down through your hair and beard and onto your clothing as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The teaching that their Messiah would be a son or the royal heir of David was strongly taught in the scripture. No one disputed this. For example, Psalm 89 verses 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Psalm 132 verse 11. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. Jesus was, of course, a physical descendant of David. He was the fruit of David's body by descent. Otherwise, the Jews could have immediately discredited him as a candidate for Messiah. And so he was descended from David. But here's where it gets interesting. Jesus quoted another scripture that the scribes knew described their Messiah, but they didn't really have an answer for it. Verse 36, for David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. 
Now notice first that it says David said him or David himself said by the Holy Spirit. That's an incredible phrase by itself. It teaches the divine inspiration of the scriptures. The biblical doctrine of inspiration is not dictation. God didn't get David alone and say, you need to have 150 pens because I've got a bunch of psalms I want to dictate right now. It wasn't like a steno thing. As evangelicals, we view the Bible as a genuinely human product, but one whose creation was superintended by the Holy Spirit, preserving the author's works from uh, error without eliminating their specific situation or style or concerns. We call it verbal plenary inspiration of the original manuscripts, which, by which we mean that each word, not just the ideas or the concepts, but each word was meaningfully chosen by the human author under the superintendence of God. The Bible is the most unique writing in all of uh, humankind. Other proposed religious writings admit to being dictation, and normally they're dictated to the author by demons. Uh, They don't see it that way, but that's how the Bible sees it. Uh, The Bible is not a dictation. God inspires the writers to write from their own uh, experience and their own personality and with their own uh, judgment and such exactly the words that he wants written. And so it's, it's an amazing thing. The verse is from Psalm 110. It's one of the most quoted verses in all of the New Testament. Five times it's quoted directly and other times indirectly. Uh, Some commentators suggest it is the most quoted of all Old Testament verses. The heart of interpreting it or misinterpreting it has to do with identifying who David is talking about when he says, my Lord. I get the impression from Jesus that the scribes passed over this question. They knew it was a description of their Messiah, but they could not really make sense of it. I can tell you what at least some Jewish scholars say today to try to make sense of it. First, they argue that the two words for Lord are different, and they are correct. The first word is Jehovah, or Yahweh, while the second is the Hebrew word Adonai. It means my Lord or my master. And they therefore say that the second reference is to just a mere man. The kind of master that is meant, however, is made clear in the whole psalm. The psalm shows that the reference is to one who is more than a mere man. It's clear in the context of the psalm that both names refer to persons of the Godhead. Second, Jewish scholars argue that since this was a psalm, it was meant to be sung by the Levites about David, not about a descendant of his. But that doesn't fit Jesus' use of it. Jesus clearly understood that David was talking about uh, someone else and not himself. In the next verse, Jesus will make that clear, but even more convincing is that Jesus identifies this person as himself at the end of the book of Revelation. Now, the Jews didn't have this, but they have it now. At the end of the book of the Revelation, in chapter 22, Jesus says, I, Jesus, am the root and the offspring of David. And he puts it in clearer terms than Psalm 110, but he's saying the same thing. Somehow he preceded David in time, And he also was the descendant of David. And this is the dilemma that Jesus throws down for the scribes, the students and teachers of the scripture. How is it that the Messiah can precede David and be his Lord and also be his son? The only possible interpretation 
was and is that this person both preceded and followed him in history. And that's why Jesus in verse 37 says, Therefore David calls him Lord, how is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. So check this out. Jesus wasn't merely talking about the interpretation of a messianic verse. It's not just a philosophical discussion. He was talking about himself. Remember, this is occurring during Passion Week. On Palm Sunday, the crowds had hailed Jesus as the son of David, shouting their hosannas. Uh, Prior to that, he'd been hailed as the son of David by others. For example, by blind Bartimaeus. Son of David, have mercy on me. And so when Jesus quotes from Psalm 110 and says, how is it that the son of David is also David's Lord? He might as well have said, how is it that I am also David's Lord? Because I have been identified before you as the son of David. And in effect, what he was saying is, do you understand that I am his Lord, that I being a man and David's descendant preceded him because I am his God and maker. You know, a lot of times people say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. But this is a very, very bold claim. He's saying, I I was before David. And the only way that that's possible is if he is David's God, if he is David's maker. Put this teaching together with other verses such as Isaiah 7, 14, our famous Christmas card verse. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. I'm not saying the Jews could have known everything we know because we have the complete revelation of the word of God, but they could have known that their Messiah, this son of David, this one who would be in David's line, was more than a mere man because he would be born of a virgin, he would be God with us, he would precede David as well. And so they were just missing that. They weren't looking for that. Next, notice the phrase, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This verse, these words, they're just really packed full of doctrine. You can go in so many different directions sharing Christ from these words. The psalmist foresaw that the Messiah would be rejected by the Jews. He saw the ascension into heaven to sit at God's right hand. That means he also saw that the Lord would return as king once his enemies were vanquished. So he sees the second coming as well. It's amazing how much you can pack into just a few words. The scribes didn't see Jesus as he was drawn for them in their scriptures. We need to make sure we don't make that same mistake. They had a picture of Jesus drawn in the word of God. And they made certain errors. And it cost them. We have a complete picture of Jesus from the word of God. We want to make sure that we present that picture as it is presented in the word. Now, there's a book. It's called The Original Jesus. The author is a pastor by the name of Daniel Darling. I haven't read the whole book. I'm not necessarily recommending it, but it's a fascinating thesis. He lists 10 Jesuses of our own making. His idea is that we are not getting the, the real picture of the original Jesus because we keep making a Jesus like ourselves. Let me list the 10 that he comes up with, but in the interest of time, I'll only expand on a couple of them. He lists Guru Jesus, Red Letter Jesus, Braveheart Jesus, American Jesus, Left Wing Jesus, Dr. Phil Jesus, The Prosperity Jesus, Post-Church Jesus, BFF Jesus, and legalistic Jesus. For example, Guru Jesus, I would call him Discovery Channel Jesus. 
He's the wise, winsome, slightly supernatural figure who fits nicely among other religious titans like the Buddha and Muhammad and Vishnu. He's the Jesus people think is a great teacher, not the son of God, not making demands on your soul. He's a safe Jesus who only tells you good, affirming, uplifting things, but doesn't bother you with dangerous talk about uh, you know, living a crucified life. Braveheart Jesus, I would call macho Jesus, he's come to help men recover their masculinity. This Jesus is a response to the crisis in our culture, that crisis of manhood where men are not really Christian men the way they ought to be. Uh, The problem is what it developed into is pastors with hyper-masculine tough talk cussing in the pulpit and giving very sexually explicit studies, uh, sort of a machoism that, that invaded Uh, you know, pulpits across America. BFF Jesus is a friend of sinners. He offers personal salvation by faith. However, the BFF Jesus of some of our modern worship songs sounds less like the righteous ruler of Revelation and more like Taylor Swift's ex-boyfriend. He's sort of clingy and, and, you know, needy, and uh, he's, he's really not the Jesus of the scripture. Now, the particular Jesus is listed They're simply the observation of the author as he looks at the uh, landscape around him. Don't get bogged down in any of them except to see that it is easy to present a wrong or at least incomplete picture of Jesus. I think there's, in in those different Jesuses, we can see that, yeah, yeah, I do remember some of that was out there and it's it's skewed to a certain dimension and it, it didn't give a really particularly complete picture of the Jesus of the Bible. And so it might be good to ask ourselves, are we presenting one of those Jesuses or maybe some other Jesus that is of our own making? Our best defense against drawing the wrong picture of Jesus is the systematic reading and study of the entire Bible. The Bible is, after all, about Jesus. He said so himself in Hebrews chapter chapter 10, Calvary pastor makes up new verse. <laughs> Turn to chapter twin. That's some secret Kabbalic uh, understanding that only, only the platinum group understands. But anyway, <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. And so Jesus uh, uses this of himself and he says, hey, the book, the volume of it, the entire volume from Genesis through Revelation, it's about me. I'm the topic. Have you ever seen those renderings of planet Earth from space that start to zoom down closer and closer. You see the whole earth and then it gets closer to the continents and you know, finally the, the city and then it's looking at your house and you're thinking, how creepy is this? Is this a drone strike or what? You know, but, but the first time I ever saw that uh, it was before Google Earth. There, Tom Hanks has a movie called The Burbs, kind of a dark comedy and that's how it starts and it focuses in on one cul-de-sac and that's the, the story. But I realized that if you only look at that zoomed view you get a totally skewed perspective on the larger world. And that's why we can't uh, comment, uh, or we can't underemphasize or overemphasize anything in the word of God. We have to comment on all of it as it comes to us, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Uh, the only way I know of doing that is to take it that way 
to teach it that way over and over again and to read it that way. Even then, we must be careful to not force upon the words our own political or patriotic or psychological template. We need a humility of heart, a submission that allows God to show us the original Jesus of the Bible. And, and uh, another way of putting this uh, is to ask yourself, am I becoming more like the Jesus I read about? Or is Jesus becoming more like me? And if Jesus is becoming more like you, then you are spinning your own Jesus rather than uh, revealing the Jesus of the Bible who saves and heals and redeems. Now, verses 38 through 40, are you revealing Jesus as you are present in the world? Since the scribes taught about God and godliness, it was natural to expect they'd be good representatives of God. After all, studying and teaching others the word of God should have a profound effect on you, right? Well, yes, but not in their case, because with their skewed picture of Jesus, their behavior fell far short of being godly. And so verse 38, then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes. Now, Jesus was not hesitant to issue warnings. The teachings you listen to and the books you read, they can be harmful. There are false teachings and doctrines of demons that can lead someone to an eternity separated from God in eternal conscious torment. We're not here to censor. We're not going to give you a list of banned books or anything like that. But we do warn and we make this warning, find out where a book is coming from, where a teaching is coming from, get some background on the teacher, on the author, figure, figure it out. I ne- almost never read anything Christian unless I know something about the author because a lot of times that tells me everything I need to know and why he makes a certain argument and those kinds of things. And then if you want to still read it, read it cautiously. In, in the book of Acts, one of our favorite passages is quoted all the time. It talks about the Bereans. The Bereans heard the Apostle Paul teach the scriptures. That's an e-ticket. That, that's something that on the first day that ticket's available, you're talking to Ticketmaster and saying, I want front row. The Apostle Paul saved on the road to Damascus. The greatest living apostle. He, a guy who would go on to say, I imitate Christ, you imitate me. I want to hear that guy's teaching. The Bereans heard him teach and they said, okay, hang on, hold that thought. We're going to go read the scriptures now and see if what you said lines up. And so that's, that's what we warn everybody to do. Hey, take my transcripts. They're out there and read them and say, hey, this doesn't make sense with something else I read or is this really true or how can this be true? Ask questions about it. And we, we're here to teach the word of God, not to promote ourselves and, and, and to get things right. And so be careful out there. It's a jungle out there. The content of the teaching ought to be examined, but so should the character of the teacher. Jesus is going to bust scribes whose behavior reveals evil ulterior motives. And so verse 38, then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at the feasts. We should not conclude that all scribes were bad or that they were equally bad. We saw earlier in the chapter a sincere scribe who Jesus said was not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus is setting forth some tests whereby his hearers might determine the character of the scribes in whom they could put their trust and those that were sort of phony. 
Now, the scribes to avoid were those who had a certain way of walking. I can't put it any other way. Jesus said they walk a certain way. They wore long, flowing robes, and they had perfected a kind of walk that announced their coming. The only thing I could think of is, you know, that's weird is that, you know, these models on a runway. Ever, you ever seen these, these like six foot tall, 98 pound women trying to walk down a runway with their feet in front of you? And it's just like, it's crazy. You know, was, I, I don't know what these guys did, but I'm sure they starched their robes and that they swished. We would call it sashaying. These guys had a particular way of walking. And I, I, I don't even know what it was. But you could be in the marketplace and say, what's that? What's that? Oh, the, I hear a scribe. And I mean, it sounds funny, but that's what you say. You know the guy. And I, I can see people laughing like you're laughing, saying, yeah, scribe John over there. Yeah, that guy, man, when he comes in, he can barely move. His robe is so starched, you know. So they had a certain way of doing that. To make an application, in the pulpit, there's a fine line between being engaging and becoming overly entertaining. It's, of course, wrong to judge motives, but some guys and gals are obviously over the top in their presentation of the Word of God. It becomes more of a performance than it does uh, preaching the gospel. I don't know where to draw that line always. Um, certainly, it's, it's okay to stay behind your pulpit. It's okay to not have a pulpit. It's okay to walk around, you know. If you're comfortable, you can walk out into the... But at some point, people get a little bit too theatrical and you just want to avoid that. Now, the greetings in the marketplace were something more than saying hi and asking, how are you? Because of their position as teachers, these guys were shown honor and respect. That's okay until some of them expected, for example, to be kissed on the hand uh, out of respect. And so you'd come up to the scribe and he would immediately put up his hand like this. I can appreciate proper respect for position, but I remember after my confirmation in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which, by the way, I was excited about because it was the last thing I had to do as a Catholic for the rest of my life, pretty much. Uh, Some of you know what I mean. I don't mean to diss the Catholic Church. Yes, I do. But... uh, so you go through all this series of sacraments and when you're finally, you know, like 12 or 13, you're confirmed. And I mean, that's it. I mean, you're saved. You're on your way to heaven or by way of purgatory mainly, but purgatory couldn't be any worse than San Bernardino. And so, you know, I was in. So you go through your confirmation and then afterwards I learned that you had to stand in line to meet the bishop who could sashay if he wanted to. I mean, he was all decked out in like high priestly garments and you had to kiss his ring. And, and you were like the, you know, 358th kid who kissed his ring. And you, I don't think it's hygienic. I, I'll tell you a story. You know, if you were here, I think it was, was it last week? Were you here second service? Did we do a baby dedication last week, second service? Yeah, the cute little kid, Aiden. He had slobber all over his fingers. I mean, his fingers were dripping with, with infant saliva. I mean, if there were any diseases, I mean, they were there, you know, and stuff. And he, I, here he comes. I had to take one for the team, you know. I mean, how, how would it be? Dur- oh, excuse me. Uh, anyway. So I'm not going to be kissing anybody's ring anytime soon. And if I happen to make a gesture like this, it's only because I've got arthritis. Don't, you know, just. 
Actually, because I'm a pastor, people wonder what to call me. I mean, in respect for the position. People usually from uh, more of a traditional point of view, it, it pains them to do it because of who I am, but they call me reverend. Uh, Pastor is a good one. Pastor Gene, Pastor Pensiero. Some of you call me PG. That's okay. I kind of like that. And some of you just call me Gene. That's not disrespectful either. I love it. For a while, one of the brothers here in the church who misread the text used to refer to me as pasture. <laughs> and so we'd be, he'd, whenever he'd come, he'd say, well, Pastor Gene, and I didn't have the heart to correct him. Uh, it, was, it was pretty hilarious. I, like, so if you want to call me Pastor, you can do that too. And that, that'll be our little joke. We have a pasture. Anyway. Of course, I get called a lot of other names too, but these are the ones I would prefer. <laughs> anyway, the best seats in the synagogue were on the bench at the end of the room before the chest where the scriptures were kept. It faced the audience and was reserved for the leaders and the people of distinction. You know, it's customary at some denominational churches for some of the leaders to sit on the stage, on the platform, uh, while the message is going on. So imagine eight or ten guys back here in chairs right now just sitting here looking at you like this. I don't know about you, but I'd find that extremely distracting. And of course, today, if in order to follow along, they'd have their, their tablet or their phone, and who knows what they're... I just, it's just, we're never going to do that either. Actually, I can't find eight guys that are willing to sit behind me, but anyway. I just can't think of anything more awkward than that. Now, and then they wanted the best places at the feast. That refers to the places on the reclining couches reserved for the most honored guests. Today, we'd refer to it as the head table. Verse 40, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. One of the commentaries I consulted explained the relationship between scribes and widows, and this is what it said. One of the functions of the scribe was to serve as a consultant in estate planning for widows. Their role gave them the opportunity to convince lonely, susceptible women that their money and property should be given to them. And so they would go and they would win the respect of these widows and overwhelm them with their false godliness. And then they would tell them the best thing to do with their money would be to let them uh, manage it and deal with it. And they would rob these widows. How low can you go? We believe here that it's best to not ask for money, but to let God move on the hearts of his saints to give. We talk about money when we encounter it in the scripture. And, and, and we talk about it hard when we do that. Uh, and we put it in perspective. But we're not going to, if I ever want to come over to your house, it's not to do estate planning. Now, we could raise a lot more money. These Companies call me all the time and they say, we guarantee that with our program, you can raise your income by 10, 20%. Some of you have been through campaigns like that. They are just nothing short of brutal. You can't feel any worse than you feel once one of these guys gets done with you in terms of what you're doing with your money. And so we just leave that to the Lord. It's between you and the Lord. We teach from the word of God and, and you deal with it. And you know what? In 30 years... We've never been wanting. God has always been faithful. 
We've had tough times, we've had great times, but we've never been wanting, and that's the way we're going to keep it. Pretentious long prayers were another hallmark of the slimy scribes. In public, they prayed extra long, extra loud, using the best King James English. Their eloquence and breath control and articulation was like that of a stage actor playing the part of a godly man. Every now and then when we open up for congregational prayer at a service, we'll have someone pray a Bible study. It quickly becomes clear they have a point they wish to get across to others, and they do it while pretending to pray to God. But they're really not talking to God, they're talking to us about what they want us to know. Jesus painted a pretty good picture of these guys. His hearers would recognize many of the scribes as having these tendencies. They probably looked at a few of them because they were there in the audience and whispered, say, yeah, scribe John over there, man, that guy, he prays 20 minutes at a time. And this would be very embarrassing for the scribes. Their godliness, or godlessness, excuse me, was far more serious than you might think. Jesus said they're going to receive greater condemnation. Condemnation in question is eternal at the final judgment, a final judgment which, by the way, will be meted out by Jesus, so he knew what he was talking about. Now, we know that the wicked dead, all those who have died rejecting Jesus, will be raised from the dead simultaneously to be judged and then cast alive into the lake of fire to suffer eternal conscious torment. If you're not a Christian this morning and you die before you receive Christ as your Savior, there's no second chance after death and you are slated for eternal punishment. You read about it at the end of chapter 20 in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. If all non-believers are scheduled to be thrown into the lake of fire, how is it that Jesus spoke of a greater condemnation for some of them? Well, another way this question is sometimes framed is to ask, are there degrees of punishment in hell? And biblically, the answer is yes. Let me read a few verses to you that set this out. Matthew 11, Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Then this from Luke, and this servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, he shall be beaten with many stripes, but he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes will be beaten with fewer stripes. And then very clearly here in Hebrews ten twenty nine, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. And so if the Bible speaks of greater condemnation of Chorazin and Bethsaida, of one slave receiving more punishment than another, and of a more severe punishment being reserved for those who trample underfoot the Son of God, then it would seem that there are degrees of punishment in the afterlife. Now beyond that, I have no idea exactly how those more severe punishments will be meted out. And so we only teach what the Bible teaches, not what it doesn't teach. And so when the question comes up, well, if if you're in the lake of fire, what are you talking about? I don't know. But the way I look at it, if I'm not scared enough of the lake of fire, it could even be worse than that. And I need to be thinking about these things as a non-believer. I am sure that the torment of all non-believers will be unrelenting whatever level they're at. 
A Christian, of course, means Christ-like. It's a basic fact of Christianity that the world gets its picture of Jesus from observing you and me. It's a like-it-or-not situation. It goes with the territory. It's just part of the package. You cannot avoid it. The word represent has become popular shorthand to encourage someone to do and be their best. If you tell me you're going to be in a competition of some kind, I'll just say, hey, represent, and you'll understand what I mean. If you do well afterwards, I may say to you, hey, way to represent. It's understood that the folks who saw you got a good impression of those in your group. And so it's become kind of a summary word or uh, uh, you know, a, a, a concept that we'll use. We, and by we I mean believers in Jesus Christ, ought to start using that word more and more. We can remind ourselves and each other that both in church but mostly out in the world, we represent the original Jesus of the Bible. Let's do it in a manner that we can joyously say to one another, way to represent. And I was thinking uh, that when we see Jesus at his reward seat, the Bible says the words we want to hear are well done, good and faithful servant. But in a contemporary sense, we could see Jesus saying, hey, Gene, way to represent. Let's pray.